netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Well, hello, and welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery, and we've got a bit of a different FX Podcast this week, and that's because Mike is joining me here on the podcast directly. And I guess, Mike, you are the guest today. I am. Um, I am the guest. I'm... Why the hell are you the guest? Why the hell are you the guest on the FX Podcast this week? Well, I'm uh, here at Cupertino at Apple, where I've been for Worldwide Developers Conference. So as you may have seen, dear listener, I posted that we've also been doing stories up at uh, ILM and at uh, Pixar and places, so they'll all be coming out on FX Guide in due course. But yes, the I guess today's focus is on, as the uh, crew here calls it, WWDC um, and the uh, launch of the new stuff at Apple. So there's a, obviously a variety of stuff that was launched, obviously stuff from the operating systems, new operating systems for Mac OS, iOS, iPadOS, tvOS, things like that. Um, some new hardware announcements um, that are actually of interest to, I think, people in our industry because people are doing sensible visual effects or editing or color grading work. A couple of nice new upgrades, well, a, a nice new upgrade to the Mac Studio, right? And also a Mac Pro which now supports Apple Silicon. Yeah, the M2 Ultra, uh, interestingly, on both, actually uh, is remarkable. I mean, that is a, I think it's like, tops out at like 192 uh, gig of RAM. It's like a astonishingly fast processor. And unless you're sticking a lot of cards in the tower, the studio is going to run almost identically to the tower. Now, if you want to put a whole lot of cards in there for doing I don't know, audio stuff or other things, um, but yeah, generally speaking, um, it's a remarkable uh, amount of compute power that you have available for professional applications. Yeah, it is. And what's kind of what is interesting that comparison between the studio and the pro is, you know, you're right. It's depending upon what you're doing because the, while they have PCIe the generation four, right, PCIe generation four, and they're apparently not five because of maybe issues with Apple Silicon. But you're not you're not able to at least at this point, or probably likely in the future, be able to use third-party graphic card for doing the kind of work that you might have done in the past, right? And so there's even, um, you know, a bit of a less of a reason to get the Mac Pro if you're doing that kind of creative work, I think, than there was before. Well, both Flame and Nuke run native on Apple Silicon now. So, uh, and I've seen Nuke running with uh, Copycat on the studio Ultra, and it's really impressive. So, yeah, I I would be saying that you'd have to put up a pretty good case for me right now why you'd want the additional bulk of having that tower. Uh, and I mean, you're sure there are going to be applications for it, but for many of the people listening to this, a studio is a very quiet, small footprint, uh, really powerful box. Um, so yeah, pretty impressive. Yeah, and it's very again very different from the Intel where you could you potentially use graphics card that with additional things, but with support for metal and other, you know, Apple graphics processing, right? Um, that's a little bit less of an issue. It can still be an issue. I mean, there's certain things you can do with the NVIDIA cards or AMD cards, maybe that you might not as easily be able to do on the Mac OS system, right? But I think that's really different from the past compared to now. I just, it's, I think it's an edge case where you'd want the Mac Pro power system, maybe rack mounting. I don't know. I, I honestly have a tough time other than if you're putting in fiber channel cards and like that, right? Or capture cards. That's that would be actually a good use of Yeah, of if that. you oh look, if you're doing um, a lot of capture and a lot of capture and simultaneous real-time encoding and uh, transcoding, yeah, I could see it. But yeah, for most people, I think the Ultra is uh, such a high performance 
chip in the studio. It's a really compelling, I mean, it's not particularly cheap, of course, but it's a compelling box. Well, was it $40,000 cheaper? The high-end version now is something like $40,000 cheaper than the original high-end version of the Mac Pro, if you can tell. So <laughs> I saw that as well. Being, yeah. <laughs> they talk about being overpriced. Yeah, I'm like, so yeah, quite a, quite a difference. And obviously computing power is pre pretty intense as well. All right, well, so that, those are those two hardware, but I think the big, obviously the big thing that people have been talking about before, um, and frankly, we knew that was going to happen before the event, I think, just based upon um, the way Apple didn't react and, the number of rumors is actually the new uh, Vision Pro headset. So, um, you know, what are your thoughts about that? What was your impression being there on the site and, and actually seeing it firsthand? It's an incredibly impressive piece just, of hardware. I mean, it really is astounding. Yeah, just an overall thing. We'll dive into the, some tech detail after that, but just your first impressions. I think it's a tipping point. I think you, you could use it for a lot of things. Therefore, it moves out of being a novelty item and something that you would actually, I could actually see me using it. I could see me sitting at my desk and actually, you know, finding it quite useful to work that way. Um, so it's less of an entertainment gimmick and more of a new way of doing your work, which for some people won't work, but for many will. Um, and it's only the first gen. So I don't think we've even really begun to conceive of some of the things that it could do, but it's definitely like being pitched differently than previous AR, VR gear. Yeah, and I think that's one of the important things and talk about that. If you look at Apple's um, announcements and things in the past that every product they've introduced has been a first generation product. I think this is more of a first generation product. I could say they're overtly saying that than other products they've introduced in the past, like right the, the watch, you know, when it came out, it took a while to gain a little bit of traction and so forth, right? But um, I think that's the important thing. I think it's an iterative process with Apple as the hardware and software company, and you're going to see additional things over time, right, as people get it in their hands. It's pretty amazing that this is going to be almost, what, nine months potentially in advance of when it's going to be able to be ordered and or shipped. And I see, so I think that's, that's really critical. I think um, I think they really want to make sure that when you get it, you can use it for doing something. And I think they're really worried that if you got it and it just did a couple of gimmicky things, you'd show your mates and then you'd just put it aside and you never get around to putting it back on again. Right out of the gate, they feel like it has to have a lot of reasons to for you to regularly use it, to habitualize using it so that you know other people will come up with more apps and, and more uh, applications and use cases. So yeah, uh, I, I, it's definitely been pitched like and presented to developers here, like they want so much stuff. Like I'll give you a good example of that. Like before, let's say you and I wanted to write an app and neither of us are in the uh, six capital cities that are going to have specific hubs for helping. So like before the hardware comes out, if you're in Cupertino, London, Zurich, Shanghai, Singapore, or Tokyo, then you can actually turn up at a developer place and you can test your app on the hardware before it's released, which is kind of unheard of. But if we're not in that, we could still send it to one of those hubs and they would evaluate and test it for us and then send us back a kind of report on it and all of that so that they can get really good working apps that the time that it goes live, that you can immediately start doing stuff. Because I think if you bring it home, take it to the office, try using it and there's not much you can do with it, that would be the kiss of death. And so Apple's going hard on the other side of that. Or, or the applications are bad, right? To your point, I mean, that's the idea behind this, right? If the applications aren't compelling, they don't work well, um, maybe aren't using technology in the way that Apple has a view of the way it can be done in the APIs or implemented, it's going to be less than 
stellar experience. So you're right. These, especially, I think, especially those um, events in those big cities around the world, I think are going to be really useful. I think people in Europe, they're going to want to travel to, you know, they're going to want to hop a flight, right, to, to those places to actually take a look at it in person to actually really experience it. I think that's an interesting thing to get the. Yeah, I mean, if you're again, a French developer. Possible content out there. Yeah, exactly right. If you're yeah, a French developer, you do it. Right. And then you could experience yeah. it for yourself yeah. and All right, so, evaluate it. Yeah. So let's talk about the hardware and what's interesting about it. I mean, for me, number one, I think that the thing in the past that's always been problematic for me and why I haven't been, I mean, I understand the promise of um, VR and AR, right? But we've been doing this for years, right? We've done these courses, PhD in the past, shooting with GoPros, right? And back in the day, you know, you've seen generations of hardware. For me, one of the biggest issues for me has always been the display quality of the hardware. That's always been the turnoff for me, right? That I mean, I, I don't want to put this thing on my head to have um, an experience where the resolution is lower or not as good. The display is not as so. Let's talk about that hardware. What's um, what? What did you find out about the hardware there? And talking about the display technology that really kind of seems to set this apart, at least from what I've read. Right? I haven't seen. I've just read the same probably read more than you have about it, but you've seen it firsthand. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, look, I was at a sort of semi-private well, developer thing this morning where um, they invited a bunch of us in for this secret meeting, which literally no one knew what it was. And they ran through a whole lot of stuff um, that will be announced and being run through more publicly, I'm sure, in the coming weeks and months. But they were standing in front of this enormous, long, long, super high resolution OLED screen that you couldn't see the pixels on. It was like a thousand nits, so they had it down at like 200. Um, it was HDR, it was everything about it was gorgeous, right? And you could have had like the entire Ted Lasso soccer team line up in front of it and they wouldn't have blocked it, it was that wide, right? And it's the sort of thing that they use for baby uh, kind of keynote presentations. And so it's custom built, brand new, everything's gorgeous. And they were like, yeah, so this screen that we're looking at, which was state of the art, has 16.5 million pixels. And the micro LED tech in these headsets has 23 million pixels in the two displays. So like the, the, to say that there's like a lot of resolution in the headset, is just an understatement. Like for every pixel on your iPhone, which, you know, you don't tend to see the pixels on your iPhone. <laughs> There's like a ton of additional pixels crammed into the same space, uh, as you might have seen in the keynote. So I think it's that's... something like 64, yeah. Mm -hmm. say they said 64 or something like that, right? Yeah, it's and incredible. And so that's the thing that's the enabling technology, because that's what allows you to have fine resolution text. And if you can have fine resolution text, but I guess that and if we just compare it to the mm, um, text. Yeah, if we compare it though to the Quest, like the Quest 2 that uh, Meta had, had uh, Fennel lenses. So basically straight ahead was kind of sharp, off to the sides was blurry. And then in the Quest Pro, which only came out like six months ago or seven months ago, they went to, oh, we're gonna have this pancake lens so you can kind of look around and everything will be sharp. And that was significant for that product because for the first time you didn't have to sort of move your head left and right. You could actually look left and right to see something. But, but that lens and that setup is still onto much, much lower resolution um, screens than what we're talking about here with the uh, Apple. And so you can literally look around in this sucker and uh, it's going to dynamically render the highest quality wherever you're looking. And the latency on where your eye is looking and the sheer uh, intelligence of the machine learning behind the eye tracking is jaw dropping. I mean, it's next level. It's unbelievable. 
Yeah, it's really, uh, it really seems impressive from what I've read. Now you correct that we talked before and you, you were not able to actually demo the headset yourself at this point in time, right? So just I, be clear about that. that... I, I wear glasses and you have to get Zeiss lenses to match your eyes and stuff. Um, so or, yeah. Or sad Thank trombone you. sound. Thank you. Sad trombone sound. Sorry. No, no. Well, I mean, but, the, but in seriousness, in, in all seriousness, that's really important because again, in, in that case, what you want to see is you want to be able to witness what that resolution is and what that experience is, right? That's the critical aspect, I think, to this hardware compared to what we've seen so far, right? Yeah. So if you're going to have a sub-optimum experience of that, you do not, well, they don't want to have that. Maybe maybe you did want to have that, but you, you don't want to have that, right? You know, you, you want to really see all that that hardware has to show. Well, um, I could, you know, I you, could, you have these snarky things I've read about people going like, there's a movie now. Hey, look, Apple's putting a movie in a VR headset. That's been done before. I'm like, no, not at that resolution. I'm sorry. You know, there's, uh, there's a big difference in saying that it's a totally different experience. Don't. And that's what you would have been unable to see. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't have been telling you whether the pixels are sharp or not, because I can't see anything <laughs> sharp or not. I, can, I, I can't find my glasses when I take them off. Right. So, <laughs> um, yeah, we've been walking into, <laughs> yes, the, exactly. into the wall without a headset on, just uh, not being able to see. Yeah, no, yeah. So notwithstanding my pathetic eyesight. Um, yeah, so there have been a bunch of sets here and people, not Apple people, like, you know, people that are developers and uh, have been wearing them. Um, but yeah, not me. But that being said, what I have had a chance to do is do a lot more than just watch keynotes, right? So, for example, in addition to being here yesterday and doing the keynote, uh, stuff. We got a whole session one-on-one, -on -one, like they had a whole team of the developers there. And so I had just me and two developers chatting for ages about stuff. And then we've had these special, as I said earlier, um, sessions where we could go and both see the, the headsets and and um, witness them firsthand, if, if you were lucky, and, and uh, get detailed rundown on uh, how they're working, how they're uh, how you would develop for. And that's been great because we've had people posting me questions on Twitter and stuff, and I've been able to kind of dig in and get some answers to that for them. So I think one of the interesting things is that there will be apps that are effectively supported kind of out of the box. You obviously have to recompile them, but if you did an iPad app, for instance, um, that would actually be supported running in effectively like a window or a two, 2D plane within a 3D space. Um, if you compiled it in the right version of Xcode, it would run an iPad or iPad OS app or iOS app. But what are the other type of objects that can kind of exist in that, you know, let's take that living room scene or some scene, office scene, whatever, where the apps exist. So let's take that iOS app, which is this 2D plane running something um, with Swift UI, it adapts to everything that you do. What are the other things that you can, apps can kind of create within that shared space? So you're right, you can have a floating panel, which is effectively a current app, um, and your eye is the mouse just determines what you're looking at on there. And you could enhance that so that instead of being in, like it is on your iPhone or iPad, where there's a mouse over button, that the button kind of pops out visually in Z space. But let's let's just call that a floating flat panel. Second one is a volume. That'd be right. the thing that most people would understand. Like it's a volume, like it could be a little miniature football game that's happening on top of a desktop, or it could be um, you know some kind of other uh, monopoly set that virtually appears on your desktop. And in that sense, it's a volume. And if I knocked over one of your pieces on Monopoly, it would notionally you know, roll across off the digital Monopoly board onto the real desktop and maybe on the floor kind of thing, right? Because it understands the space. And then the third thing is, hey, what is that space that these things are happening in? And the kind of default shared space 
notionally is the physical room you're sitting in. So the cameras on the outside show you okay. the room and there's your volume sitting there and there are your three or four screens sitting up there. But imagine for a second I opened uh, something to watch a new Disney movie because Disney are going to be there at the start. Well, that Disney app could then also say, hey, I'm going to not only just show you a giant flat screen with the movie playing on it, but I'll take over changing the shared space. Instead of it being the office that you're sitting in with all the lights on, I'll put up a digital cinema, or it could be a digital representation of a beach in Mexico. And it looks like I'm watching this movie sitting on a beach in Mexico. Now, the sitting on the beach in Mexico bit is just the surround, if you like, of this giant screen. But it would mean that in this particular case, it would be dark at night um, and it wouldn't be distracting because I'm wanting to focus on the Disney movie that's up on the big screen. Right, right. And so um, what's in, for the stuff that's in that shared space and interacting with their shared space, um, I believe it's a lot of the AR kit stuff that's been accessible within iOS, iOS devices for a while in the past, right? Um, that it allows it to scan and create a 3D environment, scan your scene, recreate the 3D environment with textures and be able to do those things like cast shadows and things like that um, within the environment. Is that correct? Yeah, it's got uh, sensors, it's got LiDAR sensors and stuff on the front of the actual head rig. And yes, it's gonna use a lot of computational power because this thing has a M2 silicon chip in it. It's gonna use a lot of computational power to, uh, and the reality chip, which is the other big chip it has in it, uh, to map that room and uh, give you uh, all the virtual objects uh, definition or the objects I should say defined in the virtual space so it knows where things are to put things on things and be able to um, you know represent them. So you're getting not only the video feed effectively of my office desk but also a digital representation of it so that things can sit on the desk, be reflected on it, shadows can be cast over them. Uh, and it works remarkably well because it will light an object. So let's say I had a 3D object. Forget my, or your example a moment ago of the uh, the iPad app. Now I've got an object. So uh, we're discussing a really cool new um, piece of camera gear and we found a digital version of it. So now it's sitting like a 3D object floating around like you'd think of in a typical real-time engine. That's going to be lit initially by the room. So it's going to perceive the light off the room and if it had any audio coming out of it, it would actually be using a sonic kind of ray traced version of the room that lets it work out what the acoustics of that room are. So it not only looks like it's in the room, but sounds like it's in yes. the room. Um, now, that's a default starting point, of course, but you might say, well, hang on a second. I want my clever camera to look really cute and shiny and really impressive. And I don't want it just to be looking like it's got dull fluorescent overhead office lighting. And so then you would bring in a, as a developer an IBL and it would just light it with an IBL. And so uh, then you've just got basically a, an independent image-based lighting solution for your hovering 3D object, not the interpreted lighting of the room that you're sitting in. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then for um, objects and texturing, they're using Material X. Absolutely, yeah. Correctly? Yeah, it's USD Material X. Um, and they're very much trying to promote this as being, hey, you would use Houdini, you would use Maya, you would create things, you'd use Material X, uh, that's how you'd bring things in. Um, that being said, while it's all USD and it does use Material X, you don't have to use third-party um, programs like those because there is in fact a Reality Composer Pro, which lets you 
use their stock library of things. So if I wanted to do a soccer ball, I wouldn't need to go and make that in Maya. I would just use the, the tools that come with it um, or either come with the developer uh, environment. And then I would be able to make a soccer ball and I could use the material editors um, and create a really nice looking soccer ball. Or if I wanted it to be, you know, some other object that was in the library, I would just be tweaking with the I know, clear coat or the roughness or whatever metallic aspects I wanted to give it the illusion that I wanted for this object. But uh, if it's something proprietary or not going to be in the library or whatever, yes, then you'd just be bringing it in from outside with a fairly standard um, approach to uh, what we would consider to be sort of normal, sensible 3D. So let's talk about a little bit about that development process and that we're developing content for it. Because again, we have apps, an app could be content, right? It could be present presented as a way of some kind of content. Um, but how does that actually development work? Let's, you know, we have, speaking of content creators with FX Guide, right? We're doing yep. visual effects scenes, films, movies, maybe stereoscopic is obviously a thing here. But in general, um, the development of these apps and stuff is done through things like Xcode and computer programming, not a creative content creation app like Maya or Nuke or something like that, correct? So you've got, you've got um, as you say, like the standard kind of Apple development tools, right? and uh, Swift and you'd be, you could program and do things like that. Now, this is what's kind of really interesting. Even in Xcode, you've got the ability to have a view of what that would be, like a preview right there uh, on the, on your, now I'm talking just your normal desktop environment. So let's say you're on a studio computer, you'd have it on your screen, you'd see it. In addition to that, there's a simulator. So the simulator would let you take that and see it contextualized in a Again, on still on the screen of the uh, studio, but you could now pretend like it was moving around, and you could change the backgrounds, for example, that the simulator was uh, showing you it with standard day and night versions of sensible scenes, so you could see what all that. So you don't have to have the headset even to be writing, adjusting, trimming, or previewing stuff, um, and uh, you would get that to a certain point. But yes, at some level, you'd want to start introducing some things that weren't in your normal sort of toolkit. And that's when you'd go to something like the Reality Composer Pro, and that would let you do particle effects and uh, kind of that kind of stuff that you would obviously not normally- Layout, right? Yeah. Even layout, yeah. And then, uh, then there's the X-Kit type of stuff, which would be, okay, so now I'm talking about what I'm dealing with in terms of the AR, aspects of this because there's a flow of AR data that's going to be coming in asynchronously um, between stuff that it's perceiving from your hand, stuff that's perceiving from the head position. So there's a bunch of data coming into uh, from the various sensors that is uh, streams of data that you would have to be dealing with uh, and managing and, and how you deal with those things as they come in. And it generally seems like they're going to extraordinary lengths to make that as easy a process as possible because everything is built off things that people have been using before. It's like, here's an extension to ARKit. Here's an extension to Excel. Here's an extension to what you've done before. Um, and we're using heaps of machine learning to make this as simple as possible and not require you to have to, you know, go to extraordinary lengths to, uh, to get anything to work. The UI elements you're talking about are a good example. If you use Swift UI and you've used that in your iOS app, it will, with Mind recompile, right? It will automatically do those things you're talking about, where your look, where your direction you're looking, it will do those things like highlight the button, zoom the button. That, that comes along for free if you've done your work, right? 
correctly from the start. You have more things you can do to it, but that will come along for free if you know have built those using those tools in the past. It's actually even more than it comes from free because it actually doesn't give you the raw data streams. And so the reason they do that is for security as much as simplicity. So you don't... No, I'm saying what I'm saying is the buttons. No, what, what I'm saying is the buttons actually, if you design those buttons to work in a UI app in iPad OS with Swift UI, those will work yep. as visually guided buttons within the, that's what I mean by that. But I think where you're going with this is interesting because I do have that question and I'm interested in the repercussions. Um, and I think you were going to touch about the fact that an app um, does not actually see where you're gazing. An app will know if you look at a UI element and if you click on it, right? Yep. It's not, the app will not know where in the room you're looking for privacy reasons, which I think is great, but I'm curious, I, I do see some limitations in apps to not allow that functionality because there are some really interesting things you can do that are gaze-based to have items reacting or seen not from UI perspective, right? So, you know, you look over in the corner of the room, it triggers an animation of something hiding in the corner of the room, right? Um, did they talk anything about, the, did they talk about that? Because that's one thing I wasn't clear about. Is there a workaround for that case where it does kind of make sense to be able to share that um, eye-tracking data so that you, you absolutely won't share general eye tracking data. But in your particular case, it could be in the same way that if you moved your mouse over the corner of a 2D picture of a room, it did something, right, um, without requiring you to click. Simultaneously, you could translate that into, if I gaze in the bottom corner of the room, the action of my effective virtual mouse, which there's no mouse, but you know what I'm saying, it, that would trigger a like a rollover effect that uh, would uh, do something. Got it. So, so it's not just a standard UI element thing. Uh, you can actually have, uh, you can target other elements or areas of the screen. So that's that makes sense. Absolutely. As I understand it, that's exactly how it works. And of course, it's... Okay. So A, I'm jet lagged, and B, there's been a barrage of information. Yeah, but yeah yes. no, it's fine. But yes, it's been a long week, it. long couple of days for you. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's all new. It's all new. These are just questions I had in watching it. And I figured that you have a bit more insight into it. What's talking to people there. What's interesting but, for me is. And I'm all for the privacy aspect. Oh, yeah. I'm actually 100% behind that. I'm like. Well, your iris is also going to be your fingerprint for unlocking it. So if you put on my headset, you can't cheat and get anything out of it because it's going to look at your eye and you can't. I mean, it's very hard to fake out your eye uh, technically. So the thing I found really interesting is what I had anticipated that they would do is let's say this is sort of a related partially um, privacy issue. So let's say we were, you and I going to, I don't know, the SciTech Awards, right? And for some bizarre reason, we decided to don this headset as we walked into the SciTech Awards. Yeah. And we captured this amazing moment. On your Segway. On a Segway. On your Segway. And we captured this and been deemed too geeky for, for, for our own good. Anyway, we captured this moment, right? That's extraordinary. There's no concept of like, oh, well, I can export that. Yes, I've captured it volumetrically. Yes, you could play it back again and re-experience that element. But there's no sense of, well, I could now export that experience to an outsider, edit it, and then reinsert it back into the headset. Um, and I think it's just security. I thought that they would do that. I would thought that they would set up an ecosystem where I could export that, and maybe that will come. Uh, but my example that I right. said to some developers, well, wouldn't I maybe want to export that? And then someone could hold an iPhone. And as they turned their iPhone physically in the air or moved it physically in the room, that it would, you know, change the viewpoint uh, on the scene. And they literally looked at me and went, that's a good idea. 
And I'm like, I don't think they were playing me, but maybe they were. <laughs> they, they, they certainly didn't act like that was something that they were, um, they were working right. on. Nearly all the focus, John, of the talk has been how do I get something into the experience of the user that's wearing it and not about how do I get stuff out of it to other places. I mean, there was, come on, there wasn't even an app store, right, in the first version of the iPhone. I mean, this is this is incredibly solid first, and these things could potentially come along the way and, yeah. and so forth, right, for sure. Um, okay, so a uh, couple things I'm, I'm curious about you. What, what are the implications? What do you see content-wise for this? Um, one thing that they didn't talk about, and it actually I've, I've seen that people have had demos of stereoscopic films now within headsets. So that's obviously one key area that might actually once they sell higher volume um, of, of headsets that might actually spur uh, the creative industry, right, in developing content for. But um, where do you see, where do you see for content creators, you know, people who are working visual effects facilities, you know, traditional content. So what, what type of content do you see being developed for this, um, the possibilities in initial thoughts? Well, there's a bunch of places. I, I think um, there'll be a lot of, associated work initially for the product in making those things that go around traditional or existing uh, content. So I don't think it's going to be a flood of 3D movies. I think it's going to be a flood of environments that you could then watch a movie that's sitting on a panel effectively. Um, I've got to say that the, there was an aha moment for me when in the demo that I was at, uh, they opened up in the headset... <laughs> the actual Xcode stuff that they were doing with Swift to, to edit it. And it was interactively happening. So they were editing and typing in the 3D space. And it was happening to the left of that on the screen dynamically. In other words, they were in the volume, creating things for the volume. And they never had to leave the headset because, you know, you can oh, use a I, normal... I, I, yeah, I saw that too. It was the Mac screen. They were like, you look at your Mac. If your Mac is in the room... And you're developing, you look at your screen on your Mac and it jump pops up a giant yeah. Mac desktop yeah. within the volume, right? Yeah, that would seem pretty And then you cool. can use a virtual keyboard, but you can just use a normal keyboard. Like you can use a normal keyboard that you've got on your normal Mac and just pair it with the headset. And now, and of course you can look down because you have the ability to, there are all these cameras looking down to track your hands and your fingers. So there's great kind of straight down view at the keyboard level yeah. area. And so you could just start uh, coding. And so you... You could be building stuff while seeing it in 3D. And that's kind of mind bending, right? Because at the moment, like, you know, you kind of, so I know uh, our good friend Dylan at Pixar, right? In his spare time, this is not a Pixar thing. He does gorgeous art. And if you've ever heard Dylan talk about his art, which is great, he sculpts that in VR, but he's sculpting that in VR with a whole lot less tools than what we're talking about here. Um, but now he would be able to effectively sculpt in VR, but he'd also be able to have screens there where he could be changing the, uh, the material properties and, uh, you know, how it sort of looks on a traditional UI while simultaneously without having to take the headset off, also doing uh, sculpting and just move between those things seamlessly. So that's, that's kind of like, wow. Uh, and it only works, of course, because we have the fidelity in the headset to read small text and not be blurry and eye strainy. Because if it was like you couldn't really read mm -hmm. the text, you'd be like, man, I'm out. Like 15 minutes of trying to stare at a not very crisp screen, I'm, I don't <laughs> want to do that anymore, right? Now, it's fatiguing. Yeah, but if yeah. you've got a crisp, clean display that doesn't have uh, big blurry edges and does provide a sharp, bright representation of your work, that's, 
that's kind of remarkable. So I think that's going to be uh, for animators and people to be able to do that. Of course, it just raises again the bar on virtual cinematography and on a whole lot of uh, set visualization and location scouting. Um, so there's a lot of stuff there that will be huge. I, I wonder, I mean, what we haven't even thought of yet that somebody will come up with where we go, oh, that was genius. Because it's one of those jumps, like you said, with the iPhone, right, where it, it was a phone. But actually, that wasn't the thing that made the iPhone successful. The phone part of the iPhone didn't make the iPhone successful. Right? I don't think that <laughs> the, right. the VR part of this thing is going to make this thing successful. Yeah. Well, and certainly, I think the, the thing you mentioned, the hand tracking, too, is actually a real interesting improvement. Or I'm not sure if it was Reality Kit or Air, would, probably Reality Kit is what that was added to tracking feature functionality to enable that. But that's going to be really interesting for for, for the sculpting things, actually interesting possibilities, right? Have you, I, mean, I don't know if they've published it. Have you seen the high, fidelity, the high fidelity mapping of the hands? Have you seen any of that yet? Because I, I saw it in this private I thing. saw something of it, yeah. They were doing every knuckle yeah, and every something. joint of the hand, of every finger. Like it wasn't yeah. just these sort of mitten gloves. It was uh, really finely tracking the hands. I was super impressed with the hand tracking. I mean, that is a very complicated problem to solve. And uh, it was spectacularly good at it. Yeah, but there's no haptic feedback, Mike. Come on, that sucks. Sorry, that's just one of the comments I read today online. I'm like, come on, you can't have it both ways. No, no, I saw that as well. Amazing hand Someone was like, this butterfly <laughs> flew out and landed on my finger, but I didn't feel the butterfly <laughs> landing on my finger. And I'm like, really? Really, dude? Um, Sorry, I can't, couldn't help. Um, okay, so yeah, so I think those are some interesting content use cases. I mean, I, can, I think that's probably going to be the easiest thing for people to do in the beginning, right? To get going those enhanced viewing experiences for films, possibly. Um, yeah. I think that could make it interesting. I think the other thing that's different than where we were when we started with this sort of VR stuff a few years ago is like pre-COVID, there wasn't the same level, in my perception anyway, of people either separately watching entertainment at night or second screening. Like it used to be that you gathered around the fireplace to watch TV together, right? But increasingly, I know mm -hmm. couples where after dinner, they, you know, he watches sports and she watches a below decks or whatever. And they're like just watching separate things on separate screens. And I got to say, like, I don't do that, but it seems more socially acceptable to have a screen. It seems more socially acceptable to, for, you know, sort of kids to watch stuff in their room separate to what the parents are watching together or whatever. So I think that culturally there are some implications there about, you know, where we've come to with the personalized nature of watching entertainment and that this is going to accelerate that, but it wouldn't have been possible to have it back in the start of the VR stuff, which is what, seven years ago, whenever we, that current wave um, first broke. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, there's, I mean, I, definitely feel like uh, it's a different environment upon which this is going into. And the other thing I'd say is this is pushed much more heavily as being a productivity work thing, um, which I think is sensible, than just an entertainment thing. Like a lot of the Apple discussion right. isn't around just gaming and watching 3D movies. I mean, of course you can watch 3D movies, but that wasn't the reason that you're meant to buy it kind of thing, right? You were, um, that was just part of the equation. So... Does it bother you about the battery pack? <laughs> well, I'm like, okay, I mean, for watching movies, two hours. I'm like, it's, we can't watch a whole movie um, on that. I mean, I, no, I don't. Do you mean bother? It's separate. I think that's wise, according to the weight of the headset. Um, duration, maybe. Um, it does That doesn't, I mean, that's a solvable thing. 
separate battery or plugging in. But what were you saying bother me? The the tether well, the, of the line coming back off your head? Is that what you, you mean? No, I mean, people have been saying, oh, the two hours is not long enough to watch a movie. But if I sat down on a couch to watch a movie, I don't think I'd have a big problem in just plugging into the back of the battery, the power lead. I agree. And then if I wanted right. to get up and continue watching it while I also made a cup of coffee, I would just unplug that lead, go into the kitchen, do it, come back down and sit down again, and then presumably remember to plug in again or several hours later be reminded. No, I, I don't think it's a deal, but I mean, I did laugh about the two hours, but then I don't know the comfort level of wearing something like that. For I mean, I've always had a difficult time with wearing headsets for a long time. Maybe that's because the headsets just have yeah. been nice and comfortable and hoping this will feel better and so forth. I'm not sure I'd want to wear it for that long, but no, that doesn't, in general, it doesn't really at all. That's a big deal and separate battery and having it plugged in. One of the least developed things that I was super keen to see, uh, but was much more in the inverted commas developer mode, not for judging yet, is the digital avatar of okay. you as an individual. So I was, I was going to ask you about that. That's what was on my list. To yeah. Get your perception of. Because I was like all over that, right? I mean, I was like, I want more i want now i want <laughs> and they were like yeah it's a bit like a point cloud but we haven't really refined that yet but we obviously want it to be as realistic as possible and i was like uh-huh um but i got the feeling that was one of the trickier things they were trying to get working properly they're very big on security on that of course but uh that realistic avatar of you um that allows you to be on a zoom call and you know presumably looking straight ahead and doing things. I thought that was kind of super interesting. I just, I can't wait to get my hands on that more, but it was definitely felt like of the things they had working, this one was more like working sort of, and we'll, we'll get it working really well before because we're done. Because it's really, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard. I mean, you know, this more, obviously more than me for sure. And more than most anyone, it's really hard to do. And I'll be frank, I'm not comfortable with, <laughs> we haven't talked about it. like the, any avatar things that you've I've seen of you with you that we post on F FX guide, frankly, at some point kind of creeped me out because I know you so well, <laughs> right? I know you, right? I've spent so much oh, time with you. Plus I'm, years, I'm a right? creepy I mean, guy. And, uh, <laughs> no, but you know what, but it, it, it just breaks sure. it, you know, the, the uncanny value, it just breaks it, right? And for me, that's why I was curious on your perspective, what it looked like. For me, the beautiful thing about a FaceTime call is like now what we're doing people, I'm pointing, but people can't see that. I'm pointing about you. We're just on Zoom, right? To see your face, your face, not an avatar. That's the, you know, dating long distance, having gone through long distance dating relation. The best thing was seeing the loved one on the other side, not effing avatar, right? No, I so mean- So I think it's actually really critical and probably probably smart of them and wise of them, right? To minimize if, if they're not comfortable with it, right? Um, because that's a big deal. I'm an expert in digital humans. That's my, to be my thing, right? Yeah. And yet I was <laughs> exactly. saying yeah, how yeah. great it is to see people in person on this trip to America. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I'm not going to argue with you. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was the, the answer to that question. Um, the other thing I want to talk about really quickly is what what is the state of support of this idea of having Unity apps um, within um, being able to convert it and run within Vision Pro? Because obviously some of those things we talk about, like the look thing, the privacy things, those are issues that probably wouldn't work. There are certain things that might not work. What, what did you find out about that in person? Okay, so in, in principle, Unity has a very close relationship with Apple and has developed so that Unity is tightly integrated uh, into what's going on, yeah? So it's very much the case that they were pushing that and it's perhaps not a surprise because 
there's been a bit of a war going on between Epic Games and Apple over the App Store. <laughs> that being said, right. uh, UE5 and Unreal runs natively on Apple Silicon. So I was hard pushed to find out what exactly Unity could do that an Unreal Engine couldn't if the Unreal Engine guys had a chance to get at it. Do you know what I mean? Because I don't think anyone particularly wants to speak to the politics of Unity and, um, and Epic Games. But I've got to tell you, right. from where I was sitting, there may be stuff I don't appreciate, uh, and there's probably a head start, but I didn't hear there was any sort of deal or inherent technology that couldn't be matched uh, moving forward, other than in much the same way that Disney is going to be right there from day one because they've been working with Apple for a while, Unity is going to be right there from day one. And also, I would point out that while you might think I'm a an, an epic fanboy, and to a certain extent I am, um, you know, let's not skip the fact that the un, the Unity team has all the Weta digital guys. So the Weta digital mm -hmm. team, God, those guys know stereoscopic work like no one on earth, right? So right. it's, you know, it's not a, um, a marketing play to say that Unity has a huge amount of technical expertise. Now, whether they bring that to bear in this particular case or not is yet to be seen. It's a question for Unity. But Unity has tremendous high-end rendering uh, stereoscopic uh, depth through their acquisition of the uh, the R and D part of Weta. Yeah, so I think that's yeah. I mean, it it makes sense. But I was just curious. I mean, it'd just be interesting to see how that all pans out. And I would not. I also wouldn't be surprised if we saw the Unreal Engine stuff as we end because they have been, you know, actively developing. They, you know, different parts of the company working different ways with Apple. Right. It's just you know they're <laughs> they're. Um, I'm sure that'll happen at some point. We'll probably gain clarity as we go through the development process because all these tools, correct me if I'm wrong, I think all these tools related to development of reality, um, sorry, Vision OS, sorry, using the rumored term of it, um, uh, are coming out, what, in like a month or two or a month, in the end of the month, a month and a half or something like that is when the, the tools will first start coming out. Yeah, yeah, they're rolling out stuff as they go because um, there's, there's a sort of a sequencing of the new OS for the development environment to then roll out the X tools to roll out uh, all the other stuff. So I'm just having lunch, which basically consists of two Tic Tacs because I haven't um, I haven't been off the stop to uh, <laughs> to do anything. I can't tell you how bloody tired I am, mate. I mean, I am so freaking tired. I mean, admittedly, I went out last night with um, some folks and we did have some margaritas, but that wasn't the reason that I was still woken up at, uh, at 2 a.m. That was like just straight out jet lag. Um, but yes, yeah, so I apologize for my incoherent uh, ramblings. I think the thing that was great about being here was not just access to information or having the ability to actually stand there with the actual headgear and look at it and talk to people. It was also the vibe of the developers. You know, like when you're standing in queues for grabbing a coffee or whatever, you know, you just get a kind of a sense of people being a bit cynical or genuinely enthusiastic. Now, it's an audience of naturally pro-Apple people but I wasn't hearing people saying, God, I can't believe they didn't do this, right? Or, oh my God, I can't believe that they didn't do that. Like, I think that the pro Mac products that we described at the outset, had we not had those or had they not been the level of commitment to the development community um, for getting stuff to work in the new Vision Pro, or there was, uh, you know, I mean, not like there was a lot of stuff that we haven't even touched on to do with the new OS for the watch, which is its 10th OS. A lot of uh, changes to like Siri, for example, right? You no longer have to say, hey, Siri, it just works on Siri. Um, right. And a ton of other machine learning stuff peppered all the way through 
the uh, memos, the um, uh, you know, like apps that we've not heard of for, for years that are suddenly getting um, kind of facelifts. So right. there was quite a lot of energy. And the one that really struck with me was that like we were at the halfway mark uh, about an hour into that presentation. And I was looking at my kind of checklist and I was like, they've done the Macs, they've done the OS, they've done the thing, they've done the phone. You know, like there's going to be a headset because they've got so much stuff covered in the first hour. They're leaving you know, most of the second hour of the presentation for something. It had to be this. But on any other um, WWDC, you could have taken that first hour and made it two hours quite easily. There was no lack mm, of right. support for other areas. So the developer community, you know, in those sort of moments where you're just hanging out, having a coffee with somebody or, or having lunch, they all seemed like there was something there for them. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and there weren't, uh, weren't really complaints. I mean, Apple looks after people really well at these events and God knows the catering was marvelous if you actually could stop and eat. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, people were really genuinely feeling like there was something they were looking forward to getting their teeth into, which of course is what we want, right? Because we need people to come up with those great in innovative ideas that we'd even thought of yet that takes this tech and does something different with it. Yeah, the keynote's awesome, but I'm always almost equally as interested in developer state of the union that comes after that, which really dives in into the very specific things that they've introduced that they don't cover right within the keynote space. Keynote address and actually see some of the tools, apps, you know, on a personal basis, but also professional basis on how they're improving the hardware and software and they can get into a little bit more technical detail of, of why they're doing stuff and it's impressive yeah they've been um it was it was a and and to be very honest very positive to be honest day in keynote to be honest john you're better at this stuff than me anyway right like you're uh, you're more insightful at a developer level than i am um i'm just really speaking to the kind of mood of the crowd as it were right um mm -hmm. and there wasn't cynicism just being there and be able to see that yeah no and I expected more of that too in some of the reports that I joke about some of it. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the contact us at the top of the homepage. The hardware that they put in that thing, what they're trying to do with it, right? This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. But other broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide. Frankly, a bit less snarky than probably has been in the past. All the things are out there. Again, more specific to our industry, I think it's really positive developments and what they're seeing at the high end of their so. Yeah, um, I've been trying yeah, to was... make up a video of my travels, which I was trying to get edited for today, but I don't think it'll be until I get home. I'll probably do it on the plane. But in that, I made this comment that I think the number one thing Apple has to do is make this a compelling user experience, not cheap. Like they could come out with something that wasn't very expensive and it just doesn't get used and the whole thing's dead and buried. If it's expensive, but it's awesome, then people will definitely complain about the price. And I don't mind that they do, but we expect the price to come down, right? And we expect things to become more affordable. But what we can't get over is people trying it, finding it to be lackluster, inconsistent, or uh, just flaky. And then, you know, it doesn't matter what the price is. Yeah, and I would argue that's the, that result is based on trying to make the price really low. So like, you know, you end up... <laughs> vicious downward spiral on this. Maybe we'll kick that and do it in the way that um, Apple does. Think about it again, first release, see it iterate over time. Um, I, what, you made a comment even, were you, were you, I, was it you? On, yeah, it was you on Twitter who was sitting in front of some developers from a different company. Right? Oh yeah, I had eight or <laughs> 10 where meta developers uh, right in front of me. Uh, we were down the front and they were like even more down the front. Yeah, yeah. Cause I mean, 
the thing is, and they did not seem to be hating on it. No, no, there was some. Not much, at least. There was one good wise, snarky, of course, snarky. No, no, I was going to say snarky <laughs> crap from Apple when Apple was like, "And you don't need cumbersome hand controllers." And you could see the meta guys all kind of yes. like looking at each other, like, "Yeah, right, uh-huh. okay, thanks, guys." Yeah, right. But they were there yeah. not as VIP guests. I'm not implying that they were like, uh, they were just no, no. there as developers, right? right? Um, but yeah, they were like, uh, that was pretty funny. They they were all like, and they were hardcore too. I knew who some of those, some of that where they were from, and they were not uh, juniors from Meta. Yeah. Well, Mike, I'm I'm really excited. We got to do this podcast. I'm really actually excited. You got to go uh, to Dub 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 and uh, check everything out because I mean, like I'm a fan of Apple, but you are a fan of apple i mean there's probably one other person in my life who's maybe a bigger fan i won't use the term fanboy because that sounds derogatory but that was obviously our friend jeff um but um it, it um i'm glad that you got to see it there for firsthand um get your perception which i think is important and also get more details which hopefully you'll be able to share in the future um as well with us as this um gets out in the public more yeah i think people are going to need to evaluate this as an experience and some kind of experiential metric and not as a price performance thing. Like it's just not a price performance discussion. Like there are things that happen with immediacy, interactivity and stuff like this that I actually honestly believe are firing in different parts of your brain. And so like, why did I, I mean, I'm not, I haven't been like flown here on some, uh, you know, all expenses paid trip by Apple or anything. So why did I, (laughs) why did I want to be here? The reason I wanted to be here is that you need to see this stuff and experience it um, firsthand, and you have to be there as it's interactively happening. Now, it may not be that you are, this, I mean, obviously it's great if you're personally experiencing it, but just the immediacy of stuff happening as you're watching it, it's just a different thing than watching a video of it. So the videos that Apple are putting out are awesome for developers and awesome for explaining how you should do stuff. And I think they've gone to a lot of trouble, so I would recommend those for people. But that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about evaluating it as how would I use it in my life? And the evaluating how I use it in my life, you're just going to have to get hands on uh, to be able to judge it. It's mm-hmm. just not something you're going to be able to hypothesize about. So I guess, John, you and I have always had that actually, wherever possible, we try to like get as, as a kind of close to the coal face as we can from most of the immediate kind of less than secondhand uh, opinion. So yeah, and I'm super glad that I came. And quite frankly, as I said a moment ago, it's seeing a lot of people that I haven't seen because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I could use this opportunity to do a bit of a plug for SIDGRAPH, we're both going to be in SIDGRAPH for pretty much exactly the same reason, right? Um, so we're definitely keen to see you guys and talk to you at SIDGRAPH. Uh, and there'll be a lot of interesting stuff coming out at SIDGRAPH. There's a lot more stuff that's happening um, that I'm really interested in that will be presented at SIDGRAPH. So uh, if you're going to SIDGRAPH in Los Angeles and there's any chance that you can give us a hoy or you see us walking down the hall, please say hi because we really genuinely would like to um, connect with you guys. That's uh, that beginning of August, right? Yeah, maybe try and do a pub meetup again right there near the convention center, which, which seems nice for just a couple hours, meet and greet. Because again, that was one of the things about it, visiting FMX that was great as well as finally after not attending those conferences for a while, seeing everyone in person, talking to people, and it's a big difference than, I mean, I appreciate the ability to see stuff online now, and I appreciate the fact there's just more content and more things that we can attend online virtually, so to speak, than we could before, but there's nothing like being there in person. And and I do think Seagraph is gonna be really interesting this year, especially from the 
um, machine learning um, and AI standpoint. I think there's going to be a lot, and, and other things as well, just taking a look. I think it's going to be a really interesting um, conference, um, not just presentations about work that's being done on, on films and stuff, but the, the science under it's, under the hood, which is what I've always really enjoyed oh, yeah. about Seagram. It's just moving so fast. It's just extraordinary how fast it's moving. I, uh, I was talking to somebody who'd submitted a paper. I get my head wrapped around something and then it changes. Yeah. Oh, God, come on. Yeah. I was talking to someone about a SIGGRAPH paper that they presented for SIGGRAPH Asia in Sydney, which again, hopefully you guys will come down to Sydney. And, and as I was talking to him, he was explaining it to me. And I went, so that's like what they're just showing in the beta of this thing, right? And he went, what? And I said, isn't that like what they're showing? And he goes, I, I haven't seen that. And I'm like, but isn't that sort of what you're doing? And he's like, sounds like it. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. So the trouble is I wrote that SIGGRAPH paper like two months ago. It's like once upon a time, right. that wouldn't have been a factor. Now, uh, yeah, moving so quickly. Yeah. Anyway, we, di we digress. Look, it's been a great chatting to you, my friend. Yes. Yeah. And you need to get packed and, and please don't miss your flight. Again? Um, this time? <laughs> Again? Sorry, you said it. <laughs> oh, I'm actually most worried about driving. Uh, I'm going to drive up there early because uh, oh, I do true. not want to be uh, on the wrong side of the road uh, at night, jet lagged, no. uh, sleep deprived. Yeah. Get to the lounge, get to the lounge, relax, or start editing that video. Mm. So see it. Mm. I look forward, I look forward mm. to watching tomorrow. <laughs> mm. okay, you must listen. Yeah. All right, my friend. <laughs> Safe travels. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, guys, yeah, for thanks listening. Thanks, everyone, for listening to FX Podcast. Bye. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.